Greetings and welcome to Word Magazine. This is Jeff Riddle. I'm the pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. And this is my very first video for 2024. I haven't posted a video to the YouTube channel since December uh, when I posted a book review of the book Valiant for Truth, uh, the collected writings of Bishop D.A. Thompson. And I haven't done a Word magazine, I think, since November. So I took quite a big uh, break, uh, really about the time of Thanksgiving, and then it extended through the holidays. Uh, I was with my family and finishing up the semester, teaching a couple classes, and I just felt like I needed a, a bit of a break. Um, so I'm going to try, try to get back in the groove in 2024 with some more episodes of Word magazine, some more book reviews, Jots and tittles, I hope will continue as well. Um, I call this a word magazine. I thought about just doing it as a book review because in this episode, what I want to do is offer a, a review and a discussion of this book. I read this book actually right at the end of last year. It came out last year. The book uh, is co-edited by Abidan Paul Shaw and David Allen Black. And it's titled, Can We Recover the Original Texts of the New Testament? This was published uh, by Whipf and Stock uh, in 2023. And it's really uh, more of a booklet. Uh, it's pretty short. It's just 97 pages in length. And the last few parts of that uh, are bibliography. So it's really, I was looking at it, 88 pages or so of text. It's really a collection of four articles. There's an introductory article, and then there are three articles uh, by various contributors that we'll talk about. And you might recognize both the names of the editors. Abidon uh, Paul Shaw is a pastor in North Carolina uh, who did his doctoral degree in textual criticism at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And there is a version of his dissertation that was published as Changing the Goalpost of New Testament Textual Criticism. And I have written a review of that. And I did, I'm not sure if it was a book review or a word magazine, uh, looking at his uh, book. And I guess this work, um, Can We Recover the Original Text of the New Testament, sort of like maybe a continuation project. Uh, from this because it's also interested in the question of the shift or change that has taken place in modern textual criticism where scholars are no longer saying that they're interested in recovering the autograph. Instead, they look at the variants uh, so that they can uh, have windows into early Christianity so that uh, they can understand the transmission process and there isn't one singular authoritative text, but there are multiple texts. And as D.C. Parker would put it, the, the New Testament is a living text. It's always changing, always organic, moving. It's like a river. It's always shifting and so forth. And Shaw rightly was saying that for people who are conservative traditional Christians, this is problematic. He's writing from an evangelical Southern Baptist type of perspective. And he's saying, if we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, how can we say that Scripture is always shifting and changing? Unfortunately, I, he doesn't tie that into uh, not just the doctrine of the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture, but also the preservation of Scripture. And, of course, he's not coming at it from a confessional perspective, and so not a lot is said about the doctrine of preservation. So, uh, anyways, this this work is something that he edited, co-edited with David Allen Black and David Allen Black, uh, is a professor of New Testament at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, there are three contributors uh, to this book. Uh, there's an article, well, Shaw wrote the introduction, and then uh, Peter Gurry wrote an article on reasoned eclecticism, and then Maurice Robinson wrote a book on the Byzantine priority position, and then David Allen Black, uh, wrote a, uh, a chapter on uh, what he calls, I think, the, the, the Sturzian proposal or the Sturzian solution uh, following the work of a fellow named Harry Sturz. 
Um, and it's really kind of a, um, a, a sub a, a approach under, I think, the larger Byzantine priority or majority text uh, uh, approach. So anyways, um, I've written a review and I'm just going to read through that. So um, I've got a you know, fairly lengthy review. I may expand upon this at a few points and just talk to some of the things. Um, so with that, let me just go ahead and get started with my review. Uh, this booklet, uh, Can We Recover the Original Text of the New Testament, is a collection of essays or presentations made at the 2022 Clearview Apologetics Conference at the Clearview Church in North Carolina, where Abidan Paul Shaw serves as the pastor. As the title of this book indicates, Can We Recover the Original Text of the New Testament? The book addresses the theme of the plausibility of the recovery or the reconstruction of the original text of the New Testament. So let's begin, first of all, with just a survey of content, uh, the four chapters in the book, and I'll try to describe uh, each one of them. So the conversation begins with an introduction by the editor, uh, Pastor Shaw, surveying the current debate in modern textual criticism regarding reconstruction of the Greek text of the New Testament. With the rise in particular of the CBGM, the coherence-based genealogical method, the old goal of recovering the autograph has largely been abandoned as, quote, attention is now given towards uh, hypothesizing uh, regarding the emergence of the variant readings, in quote, page three. Shaw, however, contends that reconstruction of the original must be reasserted as the proper goal of textual criticism, especially for those who hold to inerrancy. And again, uh, the little introduction um, really calls to mind a lot of the things that he discussed in uh, his dissertation on changing the goalposts of New Testament textual criticism. So um, Shaw concludes this little chapter uh, with some of the following comments. He says, quote, overall, approximately 94% of the text is totally reliable, end quote. And he continues, quote, uh, in most instances, there is no problem in retrieving the original, end quote, page 10. And I'm sure Pastor Shaw, Dr. Shaw, puts this forward because he wants to reassure his, the reading audience uh, that, in fact, the New Testament can be reconstructed using the methods of modern textual criticism. But if you stop and think about it for a second, is it really that reassuring if somebody says overall, 94% uh, of the New Testament is totally reliable. What does that mean about the remaining 6% that it's not totally reliable, correct? Um, or, or when he says, in most instances, there is no problem in retrieving the original. Well, if, if you say that the original can be retrieved in most instances, what does that also imply? In some instances, perhaps also in many instances, it can't be uh, reliably retrieved using the methods of modern textual criticism. Uh, he adds on page 18, quote, overall, the core traditional text is stable. No doctrine is in jeopardy, end quote. And I have to add that to my growing list of uh, evangelical comments, reassuring nervous persons in the pew that though they're tinkering with the text and uh, changing the text, that no cardinal doctrines are affected. And so many times, of course, we pointed out that obviously there are cardinal doctrines that are affected. There are many doctrines that are affected. We talked before about places like John 1.18, uh, the way that's rendered in the text, the way it's translated affects the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. Um, 
the issues of, of variance in the text affect overall doctrines of bibliology, like the integrity of scripture, the canon of scripture, um, the preservation of scripture. So obviously, um, if you say 90, 94% of the New Testament is reliable, can be reliably retrieved, uh, what's the 6% that can't be reliably retrieved? And also what, what he doesn't tell us is that there's actually not uniformity of opinion among those so-called scholars about which 94% uh, can be reliably retrieved. Some say Mark 16, 9 through 20 is original. Some say it's not. Um, who use this exact same method. Actually, very few would say that it's original, but they're, they're occasionally run to someone who will say, yes, put it in there. Um, so anyways, that's, uh, that's the introduction, however. He does at least, I think, um, you know, does set the table well to tell us about the changes in 21st century textual criticism. With the advent of CBGM, he points out that scholars now talk about the initial text um, as opposed to the authorial text. And um, he even talks about the fact that they talk about a category of uh, the text where the variations begin to come out of it. And so anyways, it's an interesting discussion. From there, after the introduction, the booklet offers three different suggested methods. So apparently in 2022, they had this conference at his church and they had three speakers, and each speaker presented uh, presumably a, a supposed different perspective, all using the same type of modern text critical methodology. Um, and so uh, three different scholars, Sunni Gurry, Robinson, and Black, uh, presenting reason eclecticism, Gurry, Byzantine priority, uh, Robinson, and the Sturtzian solution, so-called David Allen Black. So uh, the, the first method presented is reasoned eclecticism as advocated in a chapter by Peter J. Gurry of Phoenix Seminary. Uh, this uh, position, reasoned eclecticism, has been the dominant position of mainstream academic scholarship since the 19th century and governs the most relevantly, the most recent rather, widely accepted scholarly editions of the Greek New Testament. So there are two major scholarly editions or handbooks of the Greek New Testament, the blue covered Nestle Aland, now in its 28th edition, and the brown or brick uh, color, uh, hard copy cover of the United Bible Society's fifth corrected edition. Supposedly this year, uh, the Nesselon 29th edition is going to come out. Uh, and soon after the United Bible Society's sixth edition. Um, but both of those handbooks uh, uh, are created using uh, what is called reasoned eclecticism. This is the mainstream view. Most credentialed New Testament scholars in academia would hold to so-called reasoned eclecticism, the overwhelming uh, majority would. And many pastors uh, who go to seminary are influenced by teachers who also hold to the, the reasoned eclectic uh, viewpoint. Uh, Gurry begins by surveying what he calls two competing approaches. Um, and so uh, he discusses the Byzantine priority position. And he also discusses another position that's actually not represented in this conference or in this book. And this is so-called thoroughgoing eclecticism. Um, uh, in the discussion on Byzantine priority, uh, he refers to 1 John 2, verse 23, as what he calls a near-perfect test case for the Byzantine priority position, one that it fails, end quote, page 27. So he seems to take special aim in uh, his chapter, Gurry does, not necessarily on giving a positive presentation of reasoned eclecticism, um, certainly not 
saying, I think we can use reasoned eclecticism to uh, restore the exact original autograph, and I can do it. And 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 a reasoned eclecticism has achieved this. Um, he, he takes a much more cautious approach. But again, a lot of what he does in his chapter is um, he uh, spends a lot of time critiquing uh, other positions and mainly Byzantine priority. And maybe that's because he was sort of, knew he was sort of as a reasoned eclectic uh, proponent that he was kind of going into the lion's den because uh, he was doing this conference and, and the three other persons involved with this conference all hold to some form of Byzantine priority, Pastor Shaw, Robinson, and um, um, David Allen Black. So anyways, I thought it was interesting. I hadn't heard this argument before. Uh, he he said he sees First John 2, verse 23, uh, as a, a key uh, passage that would refute um, the position of Byzantine priority. And if you're familiar with First John chapter 2, verse 23, um, in the authorized version, it reads as follows. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. And um, let's pause here. Hey, I'm back after a quick interruption. I'm here in a classroom at the college where I teach, and I had a student come to the door and had to stop for a minute. You may or may not have noticed that uh, as I'll edit the video. But um, anyways, I was in the midst of talking about uh, Peter Gurry's chapter uh, in the book, Can We Recover the Original Text of the New Testament? And in his chapter, he gives a lot of attention to giving a critique of the Byzantine priority position. And he makes reference to 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, as what he calls a near-perfect test case for the Byzantine priority position, one which he believes it fails. And so um, let me just return to that verse. It's kind of an interesting discussion. In the authorized version, uh, 1 John 2, 23 reads, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. And if you look at this in the authorized version, the second half of the verse that begins, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also, that's an italic. And it's one of those few places in the AV where the italic is used not uh, to supply a place where the translators had to add words to make the translation more idiomatically appealing. Um, uh, but it's one of those places where the text is put in italic because the translator is showing you that this the text of this passage was challenged by some in their day. And so um, indeed, the second half of 1 John 2.23 has been challenged. And uh, Gurry is going to say he thinks that the second half of verse 23 is original and that the Byzantine priority position fails because it doesn't recognize that. It omits the second half of 1 John 2.23. Um, if you look at the Robinson Pierpont Greek New Testament, the Byzantine uh, text form, if you look at the Farstad and Hodges Greek Testament according to the majority text, or even at the Wilbur Pickering uh, Greek New Testament according to uh, Family 35, um, they don't include the second half of, of 1 John 2.23. Um, it'll read something, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, period. Um, and this is one of those places where, interestingly enough, the modern critical text agrees with the Texas Receptus in that both take 1 John 2.23b as authentic. And... Uh, Gurry says this verse is a premier verse for as an argument against the Byzantine text because they're just going by what's there in the majority of the extant evidence and they're not doing the, the study of uh, the, the, the scribal tendencies, the scribal probabilities. And he suggests that the reason that the second half of verse 23 is missing in many manuscripts is because it's a case of a homoiteleuton. And that is the the end of 1 John uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 23a is the same as the ending of 1 John 2, 23b. And I just, just pulled up 
uh, here my uh, Greek New Testament. And if you look at it in the Greek, the last word in First uh, John 2.23a is the verb xi, the third person um, uh, singular from the, the verb echo. And then if you look at the end of First John chapter 2, verse 23b, the last word also is xi, the third person um, singular of the present active indicative of the verb echo. And so what he's saying is that some that the scribe, some scribe, his eye skipped from the homoiteleuton, the similar ending of 1 John 2.23 to the ending at 1 John uh, 2.23b. And he thought that, 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 that he had properly copied it, but he had improperly copied it. Now, again, um, I, I happen to think that, that Guri is right here. Uh, I think that 1 John 5.23b is authentic. It's part of the authentic text. And I think most likely it was omitted in some texts and even in the majority of extant manuscripts uh, through the, the, the repetition uh, of a scribal error. Um, but I'm willing to accept it based on the fact that this was the text that was received um, by uh, the Protestant Orthodox during the period of the Reformation. Um, I think, can we prove that it was a homoiteleuton? And that's why it's missing in um, the Byzantine text form. I don't know. But at any rate, um, this is a place where Gurry says this is an argument against the Byzantine uh, text form. Um, interestingly enough, as already noted, I think, uh, Gurry um, um, has a critique of the Byzantine text form. He has a, a critique of thoroughgoing eclecticism, which is not uh, one of the positions presented in this book. Uh, but he doesn't address in his chapter the Sturzian solution. So it's kind of interesting that he didn't even touch that uh, in this chapter. Uh, Gurry says, the, the part where he does argue positively for reasoned eclecticism, he says he prefers reasoned eclecticism because it properly acknowledges that, quote, the New Testament text has suffered significant contamination, end quote, page 29. The solution is that scholars must now attempt to reconstruct the text, weighing, quote, both internal and external criteria with a mind well informed by the manuscripts themselves and the mistakes made by the scribes who copied them, end quote, page 31. So he does put forward the typical view of those who hold to modern reasoned eclecticism. The, the, the New Testament text has been corrupted. Um, it has been mangled. And there must now be scholars who use scientific empirical methodology to reconstruct it. And so that's what that's what has to happen. Um, significant attention is given in Gurry's article to anticipating a troublesome objection to reasoned eclecticism that has been raised by Maurice Robinson, among others. Robinson has pointed out that the modern method of reasoned, so-called picking and choosing readings from various manuscripts to reconstruct the modern critical text has produced a scholarly text that often cannot be continuously located in any current extant Greek manuscripts. Gurry calls this the Frankenstein text objection on page 33. According to Gurry, however, this criticism is unsound for two reasons. First, he says it's unsound because the modern text provided by this method actually agrees with Codex Vaticanus in over 96% of the variants and with Codex Sinaiticus at 90% of the variants. So he says it's not a Frankenstein text. It's not cobbled together. You can't find any uh, continuous readings in the extant manuscripts that it by and large agrees with the two heavyweight unseals. And he also makes mention of the fact that 
This is also a typical criticism of the modern critical text, that it's overly dependent upon those two manuscripts. And Gurry's kind of saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Uh, you can't criticize our text for mainly being um, dominated by readings from Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, and then also saying that when you look at the text, it's a Frankenstein text, and there are many places where uh, over the course of a verse or a verse or two, you, you have a reading that doesn't appear uh, continuously in Sinaiticus or Vaticanus or in any extant manuscript. But that is an argument that Maurice Robinson uh, has raised. Secondly, Gurry says that this uh, argument, the Frankenstein text objection raised by Robinson is uh, not adequate because it's based on a methodological error. That is, it is not using, quote, the right tool for the right job, end quote, page 35. This boils down uh, to, in Gurry's opinion, Robinson not making use of the new CBGM method, which Gurry optimistically suggests holds promise for fixing the problems of uh, not having a continuous text uh, found in extant manuscripts that Robinson has located. In the end, Gurry doubles down, asserting, quote, the New Testament is a highly contaminated textual tradition, perhaps the most contaminated we know of. End quote, page 36. Robinson's examples only, according to Gurry, quote, remind us why we need an eclectic method in the first place. End quote, page 36. In his conclusion, Gurry stresses the reasoned part of the term reasoned eclecticism. External and internal evidences must be considered, he says. Manuscripts must be weighed and evaluated. No consideration should be given to, quote, miraculous preserving of the original text, end quote, in any specific media, page 37. He says, quote, there is no substitute for thinking, end quote, page 37. And he even puts thinking in italic. And basically what he's saying is if you don't use the reason eclecticism method, you're using some kind of irrational method. You're, you're saying that thinking is not important. But the real, the real thinkers, the real rational people, we use reason eclecticism. He says there must be, quote, a careful application of human judgment, end quote, at each point of decision, page 37. It is only through scholarly knowledge that the Bible's words have been preserved, as Gurry puts it on page 37. And I found that, that, that closing paragraph to be one of the most interesting in Gurry's article because it just shows again, his reliance on humanistic rationalism uh, for the empirical reconstruction of, uh, of the text. And it also shows how Gurry and others who hold a reason eclecticism, who are evangelicals or even Protestants, that they're departing from uh, the Protestant understanding, classic Protestant understanding of preservation. He's saying the Bible's not been preserved in any manuscripts, uh, specific manuscripts or any tradition, or I'm sure he would say any printed editions, but it's only been preserved in that there's a mass of material and there have to be scientists. People who use the art and the science of textual criticism to reconstruct the text. Well, let's move on to the second of the three chapters uh, that are presenting methods uh, uh, in this little booklet. The second method that is presented is a Byzantine priority perspective that is put forward in an article by or a chapter by Maurice A. Robinson. Robinson, of course, is a retired uh, scholar, researcher from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And he's well known as probably the, the foremost defender of the Byzantine priority position. 
Robinson notes what he calls the significant divide which separates those who favor, quote, a basically Alexandrian type of text, end quote, and, quote, those in varying degrees supportive of some form of the Byzantine text form, end quote, page 44. And um, I, I thought this was uh, interesting. So, so um, Maurice Robinson is saying really they're not three options as presented uh, in this book. He said, really, they're just two options. There are those who uh, put the most weight on the Alexandrian manuscripts on Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Those are people in the uh, reason eclecticism group. And then there are those who put the most weight on the Byzantine text form or the majority text, the, 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 the readings that are found in the vast majority of extant manuscripts. And he gives a pretty, he sets out a pretty broad tent for people who are in this, in this uh, second category. And um, I, I didn't have the full quotation in my review, written review, so I'm just going to read it here from the book. Um, so he says that, that first are those who hold the Alexandrian type. And then there's, there are those who hold to, to some form of the Byzantine text form. I'm reading from his page 44. And he puts then in parentheses, Byzantine priority, majority text, the methodology of Harry Sturtz, the equitable eclecticism approach of James Snap, or even, he says, the so-called confessional bibliology position that basically favors a form of the printed TR, end quote. So I thought this was interesting. Um, Robinson says, really, there are only two groups. There are the Alexandrian text people, and they're the people who have hold to some form of the text that seems to be most widely used in the tradition. And that might be people like him who hold the Byzantine text form, the majority text, someone like Harry Sturtz. And this is interesting because I've, there's one person in particular who keeps saying, well, the Sturtz position, that's something different. You have to, you have to, well, Maurice Robinson, who's a practitioner of the Byzantine text form, he puts the Sturtz position broadly in the category of his own, um, those who rely primarily on the Byzantine or majority text. And interesting, there's a shout out to, um, James Snap. James Snap is a friend and is a pastor and doesn't have a PhD in textual criticism, but probably knows and understands, I think, uh, the raw data uh, of the extant manuscripts better than many people who are so-called credential scholars. And he has his own approach to a kind of majority text uh, sort of position that he calls equitable eclecticism. But most interesting here, is that Robinson also includes confessional bibliology uh, in this group because indeed the Texas Receptus in many ways we agree with many readings found in the majority text. There are places where we differ. I already mentioned 1 John 2.23. In that case, we agree with the Alexandrian so-called side. But in most cases, things like affirming the traditional ending of Mark, affirming the woman taken in adultery, uh, 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 we would take a position that's closer to the Byzantine priority position. So I thought it was kind of interesting that confessional bibliology got a shout out. Um, uh, and we'll come back to that. There's, I think there's another uh, sort of unspoken reference to us uh, in another part of the book that I'll come back to uh, at the end of uh, the, the review. So um, he says there are only these two groups. He's got a binary view. Alexandrian view, raising the classicism, and then basically those who hold us some form of the traditional text. Uh, Robinson claims that his approach, Byzantine priority, is actually closer to that of the older Westcott and Hort approach since it gives most attention to external rather than internal evidence. And he says one of the problems with reason eclecticism is that it's gone further away from taking seriously the external evidence and has gone into more speculations about the internal evidence. 
And so he, he, you know, Robinson would say he's closer to Westcott and Hort than those who are modern practitioners of reasoned eclecticism, if I read him correctly. Um, Robinson also makes what he calls the zero support argument against reasoned eclecticism that was anticipated by Gurry. So what Gurry calls the Frankenstein text objection, um, Robinson in, in, in this chapter calls the zero support argument. He begins by citing a study that he did of Nesselon 20, the 27th edition, the one that was previous to the current uh, uh, contemporary 28th edition, which showed that, quote, at least 105 whole verses whose entire running text as printed did not exist in any known manuscript, version, or patristic writer, end quote, page 52. So this is his objection. You can find verses in the modern critical text, and he, he points to 105 of these in this one study, where you can't find this verse in any extant manuscript. You can't find it reading exactly as it does in uh, Vaticanus, in Sinaiticus, in, in any church father. And it was just sort of created uh, by the, um, the, the textual critics, uh, modern textual critics who put together um, Nesolon 27th edition. And, and then, after mentioning that study, he goes on to mention another study, I think this is an unpublished one, in which he says he has found 210, what he calls two-verse segments, which, quote, in their continuous running text, end quote, similarly lack any external support, and he refers to these as zero-support segments on page 52. So he found 105 verses, uh, one verse situations, and 210 two-verse segments in the modern critical text that you can't find in any extant uh, Greek manuscript or uh, citation in a church father, etc. He concludes, quote, in other words, eclecticism in its ultimate effect sets forth an original text that as an entity failed to maintain itself throughout transmissional history in quote page 53. He says this is troublesome if it has, has all these readings that we can't find any extant manuscripts. What it's what it says is they're suggesting that the original text wasn't preserved and it failed completely and now it's being reconstructed without any reference to an existing text that supports the position. Robinson next turns to the method of Harry Sturtz, whereas um, Gurry just completely um, ignored uh, the Sturtz position. Uh, Robinson turns to the method of Harry Sturtz, which he sees under the general umbrella of Byzantine priority. He says that what he calls the Sturtzian concept suggests the original is found where two of the three local text types, Alexandrian, Western, and Byzantine, or, or Byzantine, agree. So he says the Sturtzian method looks at the Alexandrian text, looks at the Western, so-called Western text, looks at the Byzantine and where two of three of those agree, it goes with that. If the Alexandrian and the Byzantine agree, and the Western disagrees, it goes with the Alexandrian and the Byzantine reading. If the Western and the Byzantine agree, and the Alexandrian disagrees, it goes with the Western Byzantine. If uh, the, the Alexandrian and Western agree, and the Byzantine disagrees, they go with the Alexandrian and Western. Um, so two, gotta have two out of three. He also calls it, on page 57, quote, the Sturtzian two out of three text type approach, end quote. Its ultimate pitfall, the ultimate pitfall of the Sturtzian approach, according to Robinson, is that it gives the weakly supported so-called Western text too much weight, page 56. It is further undermined 
in the contemporary context since the whole theory of text types has largely been abandoned in modern textual criticism. See page 57. That's a great point against the so-called Sturtzian method. This was developed back when scholars were still talking about text types. Um, Sturtz, I think, uh, was doing his scholarly work in the 1970s, 1980s, and scholars were still talking about text types. And so he could say, well, we're going to have the Alexandrian, the Western, the Byzantine. Well, two out of three of those agree. We go with that. That's the consensus text. And since the CBGM and the ECM, modern scholars now are saying we really can't talk meaningfully about text types other than the Byzantine. Um, and so this undermines uh, any place really for the Sturtzian uh, method. In the end, Robinson argues that the Byzantine priority view assumes that this text had, quote, an existence prior to that of other textual types of clusters, end quote, page 59. It was dominant, quote, from the very first, end quote, and did not evolve in a long so-called process from the supposedly Alexandrian original. And you can see page 65. He spends quite a bit of time at the end of the article talking about probably a view put forward by reason eclecticism, the Alexandrian uh, was original, but then the, the text had gone through some kind of process where it was contaminated and, uh, and so began to look like the Byzantine text. Uh, but now, 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 now we've got to reverse that process. And he says, no, he says the Byzantine text uh, was dominant from the very beginning and it didn't come about through some kind of process. So that's the second of the three views. The third view that is talked about in this book the third method is the so-called Sturtzian solution. And this is presented in a chapter written by David Allen Black, as I've already mentioned, also of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Black presents the view of Harry Sturtz, who was one of his mentors and a former colleague of his, teaching colleague at the Talbot School of Theology. Uh, Black sees this view, the Sturtzian view, as what he calls a mediating position, offering a tertium quid or a tertium quid, a third thing, between the Alexandrian and the Byzantine texts. Black asserts, quote, the reading found in the majority of text types is, all things being equal, the most likely uh, to be the original one, page 69, end quote, page 69. So if, if the reading that's found in the majority of text types uh, is most likely to be the original one. In a footnote, uh, Black points out that whereas Harry Sturtz, his mentor and former colleague, claimed it was possible only to recover the text of the second century, that Black believes, quote, the consensus readings also push back into the first century and thus have a claim to originality, end quote, page 69, footnote 5. That's interesting because Black is acknowledging that Harry Sturtz, whose method he's trying to follow, didn't actually believe that you could use this method uh, to come up with the original text. He thought the best you could do is perhaps come up with a text that was being used in the second century, but there's no guarantee that that was equivalent with the authorial text, original text, although Black says he has more confidence that using this uh, method will, will yield, the majority of the text types will yield the true text. Black proceeds to offer three examples of the application of the Sturtzian solution to significant variants. He starts off with a discussion of Ephesians 1.1. This is a famous place where the little prepositional phrase in Ephesus uh, is missing in some manuscripts and some modern scholars even says D.A. Carson uh, doesn't believe that in Ephesus was original and you'll hear people say that they think Ephesians was originally a letter that was meant, a general letter that was meant to be sent to many churches and then uh, someone um, tried to particularize it uh, for the church at Ephesus and they added uh, to the church in Ephesus whereas it was it was really written for a general audience, not a specific audience. Uh, he, so he looks at Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, he also looks at Matthew 5, verse 22. 
Here the issue is in Christ's teaching and his antithesis about, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, uh, whoever becomes angry without a cause is in danger of judgment. It's that little phrase, without a cause. Uh, that, that one has uh, been a, a point of a debate uh, of it, uh, regarding its authenticity. And then finally, he looks at John 3.13, uh, which is a Christologically significant phrase uh, in reference to Christ, uh, where it says, the, the, there's the little phrase, who is in heaven. Now, let me just, let me just uh, turn my Bible and, and look at John 3.13 so you can have a, a better feel for it. John 3.13, these are the words of Christ. He says, and no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. And there are some manuscripts that took out the phrase, which is in heaven. Apparently some seeing this as, as causing a, a, a Christological problem because Christ is incarnate on the earth as he speaks these words. And so he's on the earth and not in heaven. Whereas obviously there are Orthodox folk who say, well, yes, even while incarnate, he is true God and true man. And so it's, I'm back after another quick um, interruption. We were talking about um, David Allen Black's article on the so-called Sturtzian solution. And as I noted, um, he deals with three passages, Ephesians 1.1, Matthew 5.22, John 3.13. And all three, he ends up arguing based on external and internal evidence in favor of the traditional text reading. So he affirms the, the, the same uh, uh, passages uh, the authenticity of these variants that you would find in the TR, for example, and also uh, in this case in the Byzantine text forms. So the inclusion of in Ephesus in Ephesians 1.1, the inclusion of without a cause in Matthew 5.22, the inclusion of who is in heaven in John 3.13. And so in each case, uh, he says he applies external uh, analysis, internal analysis, and he ends up, in these cases, affirming the so-called majority text. Um, in the end, however, Black says, despite uh, what these three um, cases show, that, that one should not think that Harry Sturtz or those who follow his method are Byzantine prioritists. Um, that's not the case. And he said they wouldn't, they won't always, they'll often follow the Byzantine text, but they sometimes will not. And he gives us an example of this, Mark chapter 1 and verse 2. And this is an often discussed uh, variant. In the authorized version in Mark 1, 2, it says, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Uh, that's the reading of the TR. And it's the first part, as it is written in the prophets, because in the modern critical text, uh, it does not read in the prophets, but it reads in Isaiah, the prophet. And indeed, there is a, a quotation that will eventually encompass Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, but there's also a reference to Malachi 3, 1. And so those who uphold the Alexandrian text, the modern critical text, they will make the argument that uh, the reading in Isaiah the prophet is in part better because it's in part more difficult, whereas the traditional text reading in the TR, the Byzantine text uh, in the prophets would be a kind of a smoothing out um, so that there's, there's not a conflict with the fact that Malachi is... Uh, quoted as well as Isaiah. But again, I think there are good reasons in favor of the traditional text. But in this case, David Allen Black says he prefers the reading that's the same as the modern critical text in Isaiah the prophet and not as in the majority of, of, of manuscripts and as in the TR in the prophets. And he's, he prefers this, he says, because two text types the Alexandrian and the Western, in this case, agree against the Byzantine. So again, it's that two out of three. 
Um, and this would be a case where he would side with the Alexandrian Western reading over against the Byzantine. Well, we've looked at the three perspectives presented in the book. Well, we looked at the overview um, that was presented by Dr. Shaw, and we looked at Gurry's presentation on reason eclecticism, Robinson on Byzantine priority, Black on the so-called uh, Harry Sturt's position. So here's the final analysis. This booklet is commended for providing insight into how at least some evangelical scholars are responding to contemporary changes in the academic discipline of textual criticism. In the very brief conclusion to the book on pages 87 and 88, the editors return to the opening point that the goal of reconstructing the original text has largely been abandoned in modern textual criticism, and this creates problems for evangelicals. So I, I said there, there are mainly four chapters in the book, the introduction, the three chapters on three perspectives, but there is a two-page conclusion that's co-written by Shaw and Black, who were the co-editors. And in that uh, brief page and a half, really, the, the, a conclusion, they write, quote, lack of a settled original text only leads to a lack of settled biblical theology, which only leads to uncertain Christian doctrines and practices, end quote, page 87. I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, if we can't establish the original text, we don't know what it is, uh, and we can only establish an initial text, um, then we've, we're undermining Christian bibliology, Christian theology, etc. Um, they declare, however, that they are hopeful since they suggest there are many who will seek to use what they call a scientific approach to retrieve the original text in the New Testament. So, their solution to this crisis of the goalpost changing in modern textual criticism is not to abandon that method, but to double down and really return or retrieve the old method and try to um, recover the original. Here's uh, my review as I continue. One wonders, however, in a postmodern context, whether the editors express hope in this scientific method is well-founded. Most in the mainstream of the academy no longer speak of trying to recover the autograph, but only establishing the so-called initial text or Ausgang's text and opening windows, as Bart Ehrman so famously put it, in understanding early Christianity or diverse early Christianities. Gurry, in his uh, a chapter can only offer what I would call a rather punchless case for reasoned eclecticism from an evangelical perspective. He doesn't really say, no, we can still use reasoned eclecticism and we can still seek the old goal. It doesn't really address that at all. He just is critical of the Byzantine priority position and thoroughgoing eclecticism. So it's kind of a punchless case for reasoned eclecticism. I also didn't feel like Gurry responded very well, very effectively, to Robinson's so-called Frankenstein text uh, critique. Gurry's closing defense of the virtues of reason in reasoned eclecticism, I believe, is undercut by the fact that the modern method's use for more than a century now of the modern critical method of reasoned eclecticism has produced, in the end, no definitive, rational, reasonable consensus among scholars in defining what the original text is. What is more, that task itself, the idea that you can use the scientific method to establish the text is something that's largely been abandoned. The other two views the Maurice Robinson Byzantine priority view and the black Harry Sturt's view are very much on the margins of the academy. Now, I know on a popular level and on the Internet, um, there are people um, who will say, I affirm the majority texts and the Byzantine priority and so forth. I was having a little skirmish on Twitter just this morning with someone who was kind of doing that. And I just asked the question, oh, what translation majority text do you use? 
and the old the new king james well that's the new king james is based on the on the tr not the majority text and um i published an article last year uh discussing five problems with those who contend that the majority text and one of those is there's no translations of it it's not being used um and and, and so uh, yeah there are people on a again on kind of a popular level who would advocate for the majority text but in the academy there really aren't very many people doing that maurice robinson maybe a handful of other people but uh they're on the margins they're on the mainstream of the academy and then uh, even further out uh, would be those who would hold the Harry Sturt's position. In fact, I don't know anybody other than David Allen Black um, who truly holds that position. Um, on the other hand, uh, with respect to kind of uh, Robinson's view being on the sidelines in academia, um, I think his, his view uh, uh, particularly his critique of reason eclecticism is very helpful. And I think his so-called zero support argument against the modern text and reason eclecticism is, is actually a very potent uh, argument against it. Um, but said in the end, really, Gurry's putting forward the mainstream academy view, and there really isn't a strong alternative to that in academia. Um, majority text, Sturt's position, that, those are on the sideline. Um, Sturt's position is basically nearly non-existent. Um, and again, maybe part of that, as Robinson points out, is because it depends on an old view of text types, two out of three text types, and the Academy has abandoned uh, the viability of text types. One alternative view that is not represented in the book and it wasn't represented apparently at the conference, seems at least to have been on the minds of some of the contributors. It's given a brief direct mention by Robinson, I already read, he briefly mentioned confessional bibliology, so-called confessional bibliology. This view would suggest the abandonment of modern textual criticism altogether by returning to the traditional Protestant text alongside of a return to the traditional Protestant view of the providential preservation of scripture. And this is called the confessional text, confessional bibliology. Um, I like D.A. Thompson's uh, description of it as the Reformation text. Gurry in particular opens his chapter by explaining why he does not hold to this approach, why he holds this approach to be inadequate. And so I want to look there if I can, because uh, Gurry gives the opening two paragraphs in his article uh, to arguing against the confessional bibliology position without naming it. We can call the confessional bibliology position for Peter Gurry um, the method which shall not be named. Um, so he, here's the, here's the, here are the opening two paragraphs of Gurry's chapter. Page 20, the text of the New Testament is one of the best attested sets of works from antiquity. It has come down to us in thousands of Greek manuscripts, as well as hundreds more in other languages, to say nothing of the citations from early Christian writers. The simple fact is that these manuscripts do not always agree with each other. If we want to know what the New Testament writers said, we need a way to decide which copies have gone wrong and where. Pause here. That's his first paragraph. The New Testament's contaminated. And we have to have a, no, a way to know which copies are wrong and which ones are right. Which has what the spurious readings are, what the right readings are. And this, this here's the second paragraph. He says, there are some who for theological reasons would prefer that no one today make such decisions. Hmm. Wonder who he's talking about. Hmm. Instead, they argue that we ought to follow the trail of God's providence to the right text. We ought to follow the trail of, it's not, that's not really putting it correctly, is it? We're not following a trail. 
we have a destination. We're not on a trail. We, we have the text in hand, the Masoretic text of the Old Testament, the received text of the New Testament, that we're at the trailhead. We're, we're at the destination. Um, and there's a footnote here. The footnote says this approach, it's really confessional bibliology, the, the Reformation text, the method which shall not be known, uh, named rather. This approach goes by various names, but a representative version can be found in Hill's King James Version defended. Goes by various names, but Dr. Gurry uh, doesn't care to mention any of the names under which it goes. And he gives only uh, um, Dr. Hill's, E.F. Hill's book, King James Version defended as a representative of this. Um, you know, of course, that work now is how many years old is it? Came out in the 1970s, I think. So it's 60 years old. Um, so it's interesting that he doesn't bother to talk about any contemporary advocates of the position. Doesn't even mention somebody like Theodore Letus. Um, doesn't mention the Trinitarian Bible Society, etc. Um, let's go back to his second paragraph. He says, in practice, what this typically means is following someone else's decisions from the past, usually those made in the 16th and 17th centuries. So this position, this Protestant position, uh, wants to follow scholars from the past. Yes, unapologetically, I agree with that. Just like in my um, theology and in my soteriology, I would prefer classical theism and I would prefer classical um, soteriology, Protestant Orthodox soteriology. I would prefer the theology of John Owen and Francis Turretin uh, to modern and postmodern theologies. Yes, I would prefer that we have the text of uh, the older men rather than uh, the text is being produced by uh, uh, contemporary 21st century postmodernists. Yes, agreed. Uh, Gary continues, but I am convinced that because of the tremendous manuscript discoveries, Providence, capital P, not God, but Providence, impersonal Providence, divine Providence, has provided over the last 150 years, we must continue to examine manuscripts and so make our decisions. So he says the key thing is really these this treasury of manuscripts we discovered in the last 150 years. Um, just historically speaking, though, we know that many of the men of the Protestant and uh, uh, post-Reformation era knew of most of the, of the textual variants that are being discussed today. I've read it so many times. Read Thomas Manton's introduction to his commentary on James, where he talks about the ending of Mark, the woman taken in adultery, um, the uh, sweat like drops of blood, the coma ioaneum. They were not ignorant of these things, and I'm not sure that the manuscript discoveries really have moved the needle one bit on uh, any of these things. It seems like the more material there is, the more that scholars part ways over agreeing about how it should supposedly be reconstructed. Um, Gray continues, to do otherwise, other than trying to sort through these manuscripts and make our decisions, would, he says, be a dereliction of Christian duty. And he puts Christian in, in italic. It is a Christian duty to sort through these uh, manuscript artifacts and reconstruct the text. He continues, it would amount to a denial of God's providence beyond the 17th century. And a lot of times we hear this argument, faulty argument being made that somehow we believe providence stopped at the time of the Reformation, post-Reformation, not at all. But, but we believe that God was at work, um, as the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, um, in keeping the text according to his singular care and providence. And guess what? That's continued since the 17th century. It's been there since the beginning when the last inspired uh, book was completed and God has continued to keep his word. So we're not suggesting providence stopped in the 17th century. No, no, no. It's continued. God is keeping, maintaining his word even up this present day. Uh, 
last sentence of this introduction, uh, second paragraph. This is on page 21. Thankfully, my fellow contributors all agree that decisions can and must be made today, and so I will set aside any further justification for it. That's very convenient. He sets aside completely giving us a rationale or justification why we should trust in a modern scientific method. And what has been the fruit of this modern scientific method? Have we arrived at, in the past 150 years, a definitive text? Nope. Just keep, keep producing edition after edition and new translation based on new text after another. Um, always searching and never arriving at what the text uh, is. So let me, here's my last paragraph in my review. Gurry's statement, however, is filled with assumptions he does not bother to prove. He assumes, for example, that the Reformation text was not the original text. If it was and is the original text, acknowledged and received by divine providence at the time of the Reformation, then it does not need to be corrected by new discoveries but it needs to be defended and preserved. If the Reformation text is corrupt and needs correction, as Gary suggests, will it always be subject to corrections according to ever newer manuscript discoveries or methodologies? Does this mean that God's people will never he never, never possess, never have a reliable text of scripture? Can we really hope to use the very method modern textual criticism, reason to classicism, that undermined the integrity of the text to supposedly establish some uh, confidence in it. In the end, I believe it is wiser for us to retrieve the traditional text of the Protestant Reformation and affirm it as standing in a practical univocity with the original. It's better to do that than it is to place one hopes, one's hope in any of the three reconstruction methods that are suggested in this book. So I think there is a superior option, the fourth option that's not included in the book, not reason eclecticism, not Byzantine priority, not Sturz's method, which has largely now been abandoned, but a return to the Reformation text, the traditional Protestant text, the received text of the Bible. Well, with that, we're going to bring this episode of Word Magazine to a conclusion. I hope this has been edifying and helpful to those who are listening. We'll look forward to speaking to you in the next episode of Word Magazine. Till then, take care and may the Lord richly bless you.